Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. After the rally of the last couple of weeks, we're really happy to say we can kick off this morning's program on Bloomberg TV and on Bloomberg Radio with Bob Dahl of Nuveen Asset Management, the chief equity strategist. Bob, the breadth has improved at least coming into today. But for every JP Morgan, there is a car rental company that is absolutely ripped. And I think a lot of people are trying to work out the distinction between a durable rotation and an unsustainable speculative rally over the last two months. Which one is it at the moment for you, Bob? At the moment, in the short term, there's a little speculation. I think the market's a little ahead of itself. But, 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 remember, the stock market went down 35% in a little more than a month before we got hardly any bad news about the economy. The stock market is a forward-looking discounting mechanism, and its rise now is telling us things are going to be better down the line. For most businesses, some won't come back, but for most businesses, um, given the the flood of monetary and fiscal policy, the amount of cash that's sloshing around, the whole TINA and FOMO arguments, that's what's pushing stocks higher. They need a rest. Maybe today's that rest. We'll see how long it lasts. Robert Dahl, there's the acclaimed Dahl meter. And the Dahl meter, folks, is the enthusiasm on board. What do you see in volume? What do you see enthusiasm? What does Nuveen see in flows about whether this, this lift is loved or unloved? And it is all mediocre. That is the volume. You pointed that out a couple of minutes ago. What we are seeing, if you look inside volume, Tom, is upside volume is dominating uh, downside volume. And so uh, that's encouraging, despite the fact that overall volume numbers aren't as strong as you might like. As you know, some of the reasons stocks are going up are short covering. A lot of shorts put out there when it looked like um, this thing was going to go down, quote, forever, and uh, they're still covering. Bob, I'm struggling to uh, I'm struggling with the idea of FOMO and Tina, which makes sense given the fact that we are seeing an incredible amount of support from the Federal Reserve and from Congress. I'm trying to pair that with the idea that shares of Hertz and JCPenney and Chesapeake surged yesterday. These companies are all bankrupt or on the brink of bankruptcies. The shares of Hertz, for example, doubling yesterday. Why? Because 2020, can you give us a sense of whether this is perhaps a harbinger of excessively frothy behavior that needs to get blown off in a little bit in order to make you confident to go back in? Uh, yes, I think uh, the fact that the, those kinds of stocks, now a lot in those three stocks was short covering, no question about it. And that just pushes up because the, the, then the sellers just step out of the way and, and we get the, the whoosh up. But that is a sign in the short term. There's a little speculation going along. People are looking around and say, okay, what hasn't moved? Let me go buy some of that. Uh, the FOMO and, and Tina arguments are not great long-term environments. You won't buy somebody buying a stock because they've done their homework and they like the earnings and they like the valuation, not because they just think it's going to go up and so I better get in. Let's talk about what's fueling that outside of central bank monetary policy and the stimulus we've seen. Bob, there's a huge focus on reopening here in New York City and globally. And as you go from shutdown to reopen, of course, naturally, the data sequentially will improve month on month. But I'm interested in the positive surprises. Macy's reporting earlier this morning that they've reopened stores and they're performing better than anticipated. Are you seeing enough positive surprises outside of the sequential month on month improvement, improvement beyond what you expected, Bob? Yes, 
faster and bigger on the improvement side, no question about it. But but I think of Lyft's announcement last week. Month over month, our rides are up 27%. Wow, I'm impressed. But don't forget, they're down 70% from a year ago. There are a lot of those kind of comparisons where you know the month over month or the quarter over quarter are going to look phenomenal. We'll see that for third quarter GDP and probably fourth quarter GDP. The numbers be a big bounce from where we were, but don't forget, we're still, I, I say we've moved from the 10th to the 3rd sub-basement. We've not yet found new high economic ground. That's going to be many quarters down the line. Well, Bob, we've got to appreciate then what is the dominant driver of markets right now. Will it be the sequential improvement that we see in Macy's and other companies as well? Or will it be the limits of normalization? In the short term, it's certainly the former. And I think the trillion dollar question is when it starts to rotate to being the latter. Bob, how do you see that playing out? Uh, I think it's frankly both. I'm not dodging your question. I think it's both. And then when you overlay what we talked about before, the most gargantuan and quickest policy response to a problem in uh, modern times, even since Tom's been around. Uh, He hasn't seen this before. It's just gargantuan. You put that all together, it is very powerful. So you're getting both of those uh, data elements, Jonathan. Bob, we are going to be hearing from the Senate Finance Committee. They're debating re-upping some of the enhanced unemployment benefits. A lot of people saying that the market is pricing in that there will be an extension. What kind of disappointment do you expect or upside surprise if the Senate acts one way or another on these unemployment benefits? I think the market is expecting another bill, um, including those the benefits you just mentioned. Needless to say, the employment report of last Friday has to call into question, do we need another stimulus uh, package? But I think Nancy Pelosi wants one. She told us that a month ago with a $3 trillion trial balloon. And the presidency's November coming up on his calendar all too quick, and he wants a bill as well. So maybe it's a smaller bill, uh, a trillion, I can't believe I'm saying and that's smaller, but smaller than we might have gotten otherwise. Uh, but there's going to be some stuff from both sides. We will get some extension of uh, the employment benefits, in my judgment. We'll get some in, uh, some litigation um, help for uh, from the Republican side, and we'll get some state and local aid from the uh, Democratic side. It'll be a little bit of a Christmas tree bill, and we'll get one done. Uh, but there'll be a lot of loggerheads between here and there. Hey, Bob, always ready to catch up with you, sir. My best to you and the team, and to you and yours as well. Bob Dahl of Nuveen. John, it's so good for me to be at home here in New York because I'm near my vast library. I had the intern here go back deep into the archives. And John, in Olivier Blanchard, Macroeconomics, my edition is a little younger, is, John, on page 94... Here is Professor Blanchard. May I quote, John? Of course, you may. Go on. And when when you feel really confident, put on a bow tie and go explain events on TV. Why do so many TV economists actually wear bow ties is a mystery. The gospel, according to Olivier uh, Blanchard, of course, that out of his classic, that's the (laughs) quote out of his classic book on economics. He is Olivier Blanchard, of course, an esteemed tenure at the International Monetary Fund as chief economist, studying under Stanley Fisher at his 
Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and now at the Peterson Institute, holding court with Adam Posen. Professor Blanchard, honored to have you with us today. You are <laughs> definitive, and you have been wonderful. You have been definitive, Olivier, in saying we must have the courage to reflate. With the years that you've studied this topic, do we have the ability, led by Jerome Powell, to reflate ourselves out of this low interest rate regime? I do not care too much about what happens to interest rates. I care about what happens to the economy. And it may well be that we need to have very low rates for a long time. Uh, that's not a catastrophe, but on your on your question, yes, I think we can reflate. I think we can go back, not quite to the old normal, but to something not far from it. And we can probably go there fairly quickly. You wrote, Olivier, and you spoke at the American Economic Association a year and so ago, a year and a half ago, about our public debt. Are we nationalizing our public debt? Have we messed up our bond markets so much with this Fed action that it's irreparable? Well, on this we surely disagree. Um, I think there are two issues, the level of debt, and I think we were wise in this case to spend what we needed to spend. And yes, there'll be higher debt later, but it's not catastrophic at all because the interest rates are low. And then on the central banks, they did what they had to do, which is they're not trying to make life nice for the government. They are basically trying to push the economy up. And the result of this is that they have very low rates, which is the right thing to do. And one of the channels is that it makes the life of the government a bit better than it would otherwise. So, uh, yes, I think both both uh, fiscal and the monetary authorities at this stage in most countries are doing the right thing. I'm not terribly worried. Tom Keane, can we just confirm that you don't actually have an internship intern at home and Mrs. Keane is the one that you oh, no, no, tell I to go do. and get the books from the bookshelf? <clears throat> no, no, we're very lucky. We were going to do an extern and a virtual intern kind of thing like a lot of corporations okay. are doing. And we are able to desanitize the house so that we're able to get an intern in. That's very thoughtful of you, Tom. That is very thoughtful. I imagine HR is going to reach out very shortly to find out what on earth is going on <laughs> at uh, Casa Keen very shortly. Olivier, it's fantastic to have you with us on the program. Tom's question on debt, I think, is an important one. We have the debt on the official sector balance sheets, and then we have the debt that has increased on private sector balance sheets. I want to pose the following question to you, thinking about the latter and not the former. A lot of companies have taken on a significant amount of debt over the last several months. Olivia, how does that shape your thoughts about how this economy recovers over the next several years? I think that's one of the issues we have to watch out for. I think it's more of an issue for the small and medium-sized firms. And thereby, some of them should be given a break. I mean, if they accumulated debt because they had cost, even because they were closed, but they still had cost, then there should be a way of helping them out. Um, this could be done by just forgetting some of the debt to the extent that they owe it to the state, or it could be that they may need to restructure, and then the debt has to be, uh, you know, decreased in value or forgotten or forgiven. Uh, I think that's one of the issues that we're going to have to deal with. There are going to be many small firms which are going to be in trouble because, partly because of the debt they had before, but also because of the debt they have accumulated since then. So one of the issues which I wanted to discuss with you is, and one of the things that we have pushed with two colleagues, is the notion that the normal way of restructuring debt, which 
which is a fairly heavy way, uh, may well be overwhelmed by the uh, amount of, uh, of, of, of potential restructurings which are going to have to be done. And so one of the things that we propose is a simpler uh, restructuring process in which at least the part of the debt which is due to the state would be basically automatically adjusted rather than as a result of bargaining between the state, the firm, and the banks. But in short, this is a big issue, I think, mostly for the small and medium-sized firms. Olivier, let's build on what you're saying on the proposal where there's sort of a mathematical haircut that all debt owners have to take and that companies can just accept into their balance sheets in order to reduce their debt load. What kind of disruption would that lead, given the fact that the holders of this debt are pensions, are foundations, are state and local governments, the fact that this is not a zero sum, it's not its not that you could just sort of cut one side of the balance sheet and everything is fine. I think you're right. And when, when you decrease the value of the debt, you make the debtor better off, but you make the creditor uh, worse off. Uh, it's very hard to know how many uh, firms will have to be restructured. When we're talking about very large firms, then that becomes a big issue for the firms which hold the debt. I think here we're talking about a very large number of very small firms. And in many cases, these firms are viable. I mean, if you take restaurants, you know, once the pandemic is gone and physical distancing is not an issue, restaurants should be able to do more or less what they were doing. So what we need to forgive is a relatively small amount of debt. My sense, it's very hard to do computations at this stage, but my sense is if we were to restructure the debt of the small and medium-sized firms which need restructuring, which is clearly not all of them, uh, this is something which is very tractable. Uh, for whoever holds holds the debt on the other side. For the small and medium-sized firms, it's the banks. And the banks are, you know, where before the, before the virus came, were in fairly good shape from that point of view. So they can absorb, is my sense, the loss that would come from restructuring the debt of the, of the small firms. Professor Blanchard, Bloomberg Surveillance has talked to Paul DeGuar of LSE, uh, Willem Bauder, of course, about the changes in Europe. We have seen Macron and Merkel really speak about a new unified fiscal effort in Europe. Do you buy it? Are we going to see finally some form of mutualization and union on the fiscal side in Europe? Yes, um, we are going to see some form of mutualization and transfers. I mean, the project which is in play will happen. In what form exactly, I don't know. Whether it will come in time to be help with the COVID recovery, I'm skeptical that it will have the form that the people who pushed it in the first place, uh, is, is it going to have that form? No, I'm not sure. But it is still uh, an enormous uh, first step. It's actually two steps. I mean, what I was hoping for uh, was mutualization, the issuance of debt by the uh, EU in some form. And that's going to happen. But they did more than that. You know, I thought that they would do this and then they would basically just have each country get its share of the debt, of the, of the proceeds from the debt sale and uh, go from there. They, the, the plan as it is has mutualization and transfers, which is that some countries will get more uh, than their share if they, if, they, if they can justify it. This is very ambitious. Uh, I suspect the final product, as always, is not going to be exactly what we dreamed of. But yes, I think symbolically it's terribly important. Once a program like this is in place, once the EU budget can, you know, the EU can issue debt on its own and use the money in various ways, 
very hard to go back. So again, it's going to be very bumpy, but this is genuine progress. This is change. Olivia Blanchard at the Peterson Institute. Olivia, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Thank you very much for your input. We look forward to getting you back on the show. Right now, the number one guy in the world on cycle research. This is really important research. Economists have an immense respect for it and that it is so different than the way most economists look at the world. He is Lachman Achathan of ECRI, ECRI as well. Lachman, right now you are seeing an upturn. How up is the upturn? It's up. There's no uh, doubt about it. Uh, and on the NBER and the time it takes for them to uh, date a recession, which they said uh, peaked in February, that's lightning speed. I think they had to do it uh, because yes. the end of the recession is uh, already in sight. And so they had to really get off off their uh, uh, seat and, and, and date the peak. The stock price upturn you guys are talking about, it's completely consistent with the economy's cyclical fundamentals. Uh, it was This was a super deep recession. In early April, 10 weeks ago, we put out a piece publicly. It's a nasty, short, and bitter recession. It's, it's the, end, the end is happening this summer, uh, and it's just because we had such a sharp decline that um, even a partial opening of the economy is going to lift us off those lows, and we're going to ha- we're going to begin a recovery. It does not mean we're recovered. We have a long way to go. Well, Lashman, let's talk about that. You are an economic historian as well, and I just wonder what the parallels are for a moment like this, and the risk of extrapolating the early performance out too far, far too quickly. Yeah, you don't even have to go. You don't even have to be much of a, a, a an historian. Just think about this century. Okay, everybody is hoping that it's 0910 when we had a cyclical recovery that really was pretty self-feeding. Uh, I mean, look, we had two or three steps forward, one step back, but generally uh, it was a growing, a continuing recovery. Contrast that to the recovery out of uh, uh, 2001. Uh, people uh, may forget that the recession began before. Uh, the 9-11 attacks. It, it began a couple of quarters before. Uh, and so right after the lows that were seen in the market in September of uh, one, uh the market really took off. The recession ended by November. And we had a 20% rally. Okay, pretty good. Consistent with an end of recession. But then, and here's where it gets a little nuanced, the cycle, uh, while the recovery technically continued, the economy began to decelerate again. It's what we call a growth rate cycle slowdown. And the market itself, perhaps related to the valuations, went down to a new low in October of '02. So right now, it could go actually either way. Uh, this could still be an 0103 scenario, uh, which would technically still be a business cycle recovery, but a lot riskier for market participants. 
Lakshman, one hallmark of this entire period has been insecurity, whether it's people being insecure after having just lost their jobs, lost someone they loved from the illness, from the pandemic, or for economists who are seeing their projections just absolutely shattered. And I'm wondering how insecure you are about projections and frankly about the economic data that's coming out with that huge miss on Friday with the jobs report and, and just how instructive this data is. I mean, do you have confidence in these figures? years? Uh, on direction, yeah. So as Tom said in the lead-in, uh, we're a little different than a lot of other economists. Look, I know uh, there's a warning label on all economic uh, data that is produced. Uh, and I mean, market prices are what they are. Survey data are what they are. Government data, hey, it's going to be revised. And you see some of the things that are going on <coughs> with the unemployment data. We do have uh, a recovery uh, in employment, but uh, it's hardly recovered. It's just a little bit well, off of the lows. And when we look at the nature of this recovery, those cyclical indicators, I have high conviction that this recovery uh, is taking shape. There's a whole bunch of other dynamics that are coming in that are on the positive side with uh, the industrial cycle having, having bottomed globally, which are going to help. And on the negative side, you, you were alluding to some confidence. I think that's, that's going to weigh on, on, on the pace of recovery, uh, as will the nature of the job losses. Look, the vast majority of the job losses are in services. That's a completely different cyclical dynamic on the recovery. Yeah. Lakshman, we've got to continue this conversation. Lakshman Akthathan of ECRI on the recovery that we're starting to see very, very early stages of this recovery. And I think a lot of people feel the same way about the data <clears throat> we've had so far. Joining us now, Subrata Rajava. Thrilled that she could be with us uh, this morning. What's the single chart right now, Subrata, that describes the fixed income market to you? Is it a spread or is it a dynamic? Is it a scattered out chart? What's the chart that says it all to you right now? Well, for me, I think it's the steepness of the 530s part of the curve. I think that that, uh, you know, that part of the curve has steepened quite dramatically and I'm very much aligned with uh, Vishy's view that over the near term, the 530s part of the curve seems to have gotten a little ahead of itself. And it seems to be in our in our publication, we, we point out, uh, it's more correlated with equities than any of the fundamental drivers that you would um, assign to the steepness of the curve. So, you know, typically under the circumstances in an environment, especially heading into the, into the Fed meeting, you should see a pause in the steepening. And that's exactly what you're seeing in the price action today. So, Badra, just to build on that, what's the biggest headwind or several headwinds that you see to further steepness in the Treasury curve? Well, I think the, the headwind is, of course, going to be weakness in the data. I think a lot of exuberance is, uh, is built into the market, both in, the, in, the, in risky assets as well as uh, in, in the bond market. And really, the risk is that if we do see a reversal in the data, if we do see weakness, then you should start seeing, um, you know, some some uh, a little bit more of a bull flattening of the curve, i.e., led by the back, you know, rally led by the back end, like you're seeing today. So to be clear here, Sabatri, you don't think this is a supply side story about extra supply from the Treasury over the last couple of months. You think this is just a risk appetite story that has led to people fleeing the tens and thirties part of the curve. Is that the dominant driver for you? I think it's a combination of factors. One, it's, uh, it's the supply story. Clearly, we've seen a lot of supply in 10s, 20s, and 30s from the Treasury, a lot more than the market had anticipated. The second is you're starting to see a decent amount of deepening in the bond curve because of stimulus and fiscal packages there. 
So uh, as global yield curves steepen, I think that that gives more room for Treasury yields to uh, uh, to steepen as well. And, and, and third, I think it's, it's, it's a fundamental story with the front end peg to set expectations. When you see good uh, sort of positive developments, either on the data front or in risky assets, you should see the 530s part of the curve uh, steepen um, and bonds to bond yields to rise on the optimism. Subhadra, I got to say this market confounds me in many ways, because if you have globally uh, countries selling record amounts of debt, it is going to slow growth going forward. This a lot of economists have been talking about. Inflation expectations are basically flat. Is the steepening in the yield curve hinting at more inflation or is this the return of bond vigilantes? You know, are you going to get people pushing back and saying your debt is not worth what you think it is because you are selling so much of it and your economy isn't as strong? That's a very good question, Lisa. I think that, you know, for me, the focus is is, is going to be on inflation and inflation expectations. I think, broadly speaking, uh, the 10-year part of the curve and beyond should really trade very much in line with fundamentals. If you do see a steepening of the curve, either the two stents of the 530s in the back of a rise in inflation as well as inflation expectations, then I think that's a good thing. I mean, the, the topic of bond vigilantes, I think, is being, is, is being played out more around the supply um, episode. So when you see uh, supply coming into the market, the uh, market participants want, want a little bit of a concession. But broadly speaking, I don't think that's the real story. The real story is going to be on the inflation as well as inflation expectations side. As long as you see a gradual repressing higher of inflation expectations, then the Fed's going to be tolerant of a steeper curve. Subhadra, I'm looking right now at a 10-year yield of 0.83%. What's the upper end that the Fed will tolerate? Do we have a sense of how high they would like to even see it go versus the expense of the United States to actually manage its debt at those higher costs? I think that that's really the, the crucial question in this particular uh, cycle, or in this particular recession, is that we're seeing a tremendous amount of fiscal stimulus and deficits are at close to 3.4 trillion for this, and you're going to see that continue to rise over the upcoming years. So, so the Fed is definitely concerned about, um, you know, yes, it's not part of their mandate, but I think, um, you know, they are focused on the the, uh, the fiscal side of the equation. So, for the most part, I think that. Um, you know, broadly speaking, the, the Fed is going to be um, you know, supportive and keep yields somewhat anchored uh, under these circumstances. Subhadra Japa of SockGen on this bond market. McKinsey Global Research has been absolutely stunning. This is the McKinsey Global Institute of the depth of their research country to country on issues such as poverty and the labor economy. They absolutely own the high ground on this. Susan Lunn out of Northwestern and Stanford is with the McKinsey Global Institute. Susan, I got one question. It's, I'm thrilled you're on. Is our social theory working? Our Lockean individualistic theory in Washington, every man for himself, we're going to get through this without being like Europe, without being socialized. Is that theory working in this depression? Hi, Tom. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I wouldn't characterize that as the U.S. response. I think that we have been staying at home now for two and a half months. 
we have the CARES Act, which provided unemployment benefits for freelancers and gig economy workers for the first time. Uh, we've provided individuals with direct payments from the government. So I actually think that our response, you've got to look at it, strengthened the okay. social safety net in the U.S., which is pretty weak. I mean, you've got a great global reach on this. Is Europe doing it better than us or not? Well, I, ha I hate to say it, Europe is doing it better than us. Europe has in place a lot of programs to enable employers to get money from the government not to lay off workers. Now, we've tried to do that in the U.S. with the CARES Act by telling small businesses, for instance, you can access the PPP program, but you can't lay off workers. But Europe has had these in place for decades, and that's why in the last big crisis, the financial crisis, Germany, for instance, never saw its unemployment rate skyrocket like we did in the U.S. to 10%. So we might want to learn in the future. It makes a lot more sense to keep someone on the job and subsidize them for working than paying them to sit at home. Susan, a statistic that you pointed out was that one third of all jobs in America may be vulnerable, and about 80% of those are held by low income individuals. I'm wondering what the broader effect is by the widening income gap that we're seeing in the United States going forward, both from an economic growth perspective as well as policy. Well, I think it is a big concern. We know that we've had a lot of the population, a lot of people working who haven't seen real wage growth for decades now, and it looks like COVID could worsen that. We've also done some recent analysis looking at how many of the workers displaced from COVID may ultimately be displaced from automation and AI, and there's pretty significant overlap. So for some of these workers, their job may not come back. This may not be temporary, but rather permanent. And that just means that the U.S. needs more badly than ever a true coordinated program for helping individuals learn new skills, get into the jobs that are growing, and get out of hospitality, food service, you know, retail clerks, and so on. Susan, there are some talk, there is some talk, rather, of a new industrial policy in the United States. Mr. Bob Lighthizer has talked about that. Ambassador Lighthizer has reflected on it as we discuss a little bit more about repatriating supply chains. Is that the direction of travel that you see things going in? Wow, I can't believe uh, we would use those words in connection with the U.S., but whatever you want to call it, yeah, I think that is the direction of travel. I think that the concept of what is essential for economic security has broadened used to mean airplanes and tanks, and I think now it might mean masks and pharmaceuticals. Masks and pharmaceuticals is perhaps justified, wouldn't you say, Susan? I think it's elsewhere that a lot of people are looking to see whether this goes beyond just pharmaceuticals and healthcare goods <laughs> to make sure that we don't have to face this kind of crisis in this way. Once again, is it broader than that? Do you think it is? Well, I think that research that we had done um, Last year, and indeed we're going to be releasing something in July, so stay tuned, Tom, uh, for our latest look at what's happening with global supply chains. But look, I think the trends have been towards regionalizing supply chains in many industries anyway. And this has been happening for the last 10 years, partly because wages in China have risen, partly because Chinese consumers buy a lot. So now a lot of companies that are in China are actually just there to sell to Chinese consumers. So a bunch of factors had 
had started to put global supply chains in play. And one big trend was regionalizing. Now, that doesn't mean the production coming back to the U.S. per se. It could be Mexico, it could be Turkey and Poland for Europe and so on. But I think that it's possible that coming out of this beyond pharmaceuticals and PPE, Congress may be looking at things like semiconductors or rare earths or other strategic uh, goods that they want to make sure the U.S. would have um, access to in any kind of global economic conditions. Susan, fantastic to get your thoughts on some really important subjects that go beyond the immediate crisis that we've been living through. Susan Lunder, McKinsey Global Institute. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.